Welcome, everyone, to Brown Bag Green Book. I'm Stephanie Welch, and I think that this is the first time in the history of Brown Bag Green Book that the discussion leader has been introduced by one of her employees. Uh, The good news is that I really do not consider Dr. Martha Buchanan simply a boss. Actually, when I first met her, she was on a bike with spandex shorts on, I believe, And uh, we went on, I don't know, maybe a 20-mile bike ride or something like that. So that's just to say that one of the most outstanding features of our health department director and public health officer is that she really practices what she preaches. She does live a healthy lifestyle. And leading by example is one of the big things that we really tout at the Knox County Health Department. Aside from being a great community leader and uh, the examples that she provides for all of us, she is very experienced and is a physician. So she brings both of those things to her work. Dr. Buchanan is actually a native of Knox County, graduated from Carson Newman College. She went to ETSU for her medical degree, then completed her residency in family practice way out in North Dakota. And amazingly, she moved back from that cold hinterland to Knox County, thank goodness. Um, She's practiced in private practice and so brings that medical experience to her work in public health. But one of the most outstanding things that I've seen as a public health person is that she really has transformed her expression of health from sort of that one-on-one individual care that often is characteristic of a doctor to more of a community approach. And I think she really sees the community as her patient And that really is what public health is all about. So we appreciate that at the health department. So Dr. Buchanan, I'm pleased to introduce her. She is your Knox County Health Department director. She's the public health officer for Knox County. And I don't think she's talking with us about superbugs, the car. I was really excited that that might be the case. I like those little things. They're so cute. I think that this is more about germs and things like that. Anyways. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Just show of hands, how many of you in this room have started a prescription for antibiotics and never finished it? Not finished it. Not every time, but occasionally. Or ask for antibiotics just in case. I haven't done that. Oh, well, good. You're unusual. Uh, We have people do that all the time. So we're going to talk about superbugs. No, not cars. We're going to talk about bacteria that are quite adaptable and have responded to our human behavior by uh, being able to survive in spite of what we try to do to them. Bacteria, our survivors have been around for a long time, just like viruses, so they jump and jive and and keep going, um, and and that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is their characteristic to change and adapt to what we try to do to them to enable them to survive. If they just die off every time we try to kill them, then you know, they can't keep their species going. And just like us, they'd like to keep their species going. I don't think they think about it a whole lot, but anyway, maybe they do. Anyway, the article is written by Jerome Groupman, who has been a contributor to The New Yorker since 1998 and is a professor at um, the Harvard School of Medicine. And so he's a physician. He has also published uh, multiple other books, most of them around death and dying and HIV and uh, other things like that. This is the first time he's really written about this subject. So he kind of starts out talking about in 2000 at a large university hospital, 
they have the development of this drug-resistant Klebsiella, which is just a bacteria. There are a whole lot of names that are really hard to say in this article. And it resulted in a whole lot of work at the hospital. If you read it, I mean, they changed the protocol on what they used to clean their hands. They changed the protocol on how they changed the catheters. So they looked at themselves and said, oh, we're contributing to this problem and spreading this disease. And in spite of all of that effort and looking for new antibiotics, they had to go back and pull out some of the old antibiotics. We really hate doing that in medicine because all the new stuff is much more fun and neat and easy and better. But they had to pull out old antibiotics that could still treat the Klebsiella. And the problem with that is that they're a lot harder on the system, they're a lot harder on the humans to take. Even though they kill the bacteria, they're pretty hard on the humans too. And in spite of all those efforts, they had 34 people. And you're thinking, well, that's not that many. Over half of them died. When we look at a disease, if we have a 50% death rate in a disease, we don't consider that very good. In definitions, for public health sake, Um, If we have three or more people with the same illness that we can connect with an EpiLink, they're connected, they were all in the same hospital, they all had the same bug, we consider that an outbreak. So three is a big number to us. When we get three, we start looking at it and wondering what's going on and why do three people have the same thing and they were in the same place or have some kind of connection. So in spite of all those efforts, 34 people had developed the drug-resistant Klebsiella and over half of them died. That's significant. Then he moves on to talk about some better-known resistant bacteria uh, called methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, or MRSA for short. We've all heard about that. It's made the news, and it's uh, created a lot of stir. Uh, We've changed protocols at hospitals. We've done the same thing around the world to address MRSA. In Ireland, physicians can no longer wear neckties. Because what they discovered was they're dragging, and think about, don't think about this too much, people are eating. They're dragging the necktie around the hospital with them. Uh, men, how often do you clean or wash your necktie? <laughs> Ever? No. Because <laughs> it has to be dry cleaned and it's little and who wants to pay for that? So they banned them. Doctors in Ireland cannot wear neckties. They can wear bow ties, but they can't wear neckties. And you know what? That's helped. That's reduced hospital-acquired infection rates. So we, I've ta- I actually talked about that here in Knoxville, and I've been told that this is not the EU or Ireland or whatever. We don't have that type of state, and physicians would not comply with that. And I, I believe that. American physicians aren't really into complying with rules and regs. They don't even want to wash their hands. So, you know, he, he talks a little bit about MRSA and how that, that started just like the Klebsiella in an ICU. And when I was in med school and, and residency, MRSA was just in the hospital. You got it when you went to the hospital, maybe, or if you had to go to the ICU. Then it moved to the nursing home. You know, and it's kind of logical. People in the nursing home frequently go to the hospital and frequently end up in ICU. They frequently get contaminated or colonized. They go back and take it to the nursing home with them. And then the nice nursing home employees who aren't very good at washing their hands sometimes, inadvertently spread it around the nursing home. That's just what, what happens. We'll, we'll get to the general public spreading it here in a minute because it's not just healthcare workers that do it. Um, then those healthcare workers go home and spread it to their families too. And, and so then we, it moves out into the locker room and the gym. And now you have to wipe your gym stuff down. So this impacts your life because now you have to clean off your gym equipment you're supposed to. 
If you don't, the gym equipment cleaning Gestapo will get you. No, I just know they have all those little spray bottles and you've got to wipe stuff down. And I see people doing it. Um, I have to confess I'm not great at doing it. But, you know, it's, it's impacted even the gym and the daycares, and it's moved out into the community. We have outbreaks in football teams all the time. Anybody who's played football or had a kid who played football know that football players get all kinds of little cuts because it's a contact sport, and so they get a lot of cuts, and they go back into the locker room and share things, you know, like germs and other stuff. So the famous outbreak was in a professional football team, and I can't remember which one it was, but... Some other examples that he doesn't talk about are that we have drug-resistant salmonella. We also have uh, drug-resistant gonorrhea. And so all of those things add up to more cost for the care of, of that person. And then he talks a little bit about how antibi- the story of antibiotics and where we've come in the story of antibiotics. Antibiotics came on the scene. They were new. They were exciting. They were the answer to our most common cause of death, which was infection in young women who were given birth. So they were very exciting. They were new. So we all jumped on the bandwagon, and they made a whole bunch of them. And there were tons of them that came out. And as more of them, more of them rolled out, bacteria quickly developed resistance because why bacteria are survivors, and that's what they do. So as we had more antibiotics, we got more resistance. And I remember, you know, when you're in practice, you get all those great samples. Well, they don't give you samples of the generic stuff. They don't make any money off of that. So they give you samples of the new stuff so you can give it to your patient and they can save some money because they don't have to pay as much at the drugstore. So they like you for that. And the new stuff is supposed to be better and easier to take, so they like that too. And so then we start you know, using all the new stuff and contributing to the problem. As professionals, we contributed to the problem. Eventually, you know, infections were no longer a big deal. We got them under control, kind of. And so drug companies lost interest in doing research and making new antibiotics. Production of new antibiotics is down by 56% since 1998. That's a lot. There are only about seven new antibiotics out there on the horizon. What's out there? Diabetes drugs, cholesterol. Those are the new sexy things to treat. And, you know, we don't really have to think of medicine that way, but we do like new shiny things and patients like new shiny things too so we we tend to gravitate toward those so we the public have contributed to this and we the professionals have contributed to this in in wanting the newest latest greatest so think about that the next time you might have an infection think about what your doctor's prescribing for you and whether you really even need the antibiotic and we'll talk about that a little bit too when resistance started becoming a problem they said okay when we develop a new antibiotic that's really good don't use it. Well, that didn't work very well. Again, we just kept perpetuating the problem. So, And then they talk a little bit about agriculture, how agriculture contributes to this, the animals that we eat. And nobody's saying that if an animal has an infection, it shouldn't be treated because, you know, we don't want to be mean to animals. What they're really saying is what they do now is because of the crowded conditions, they raise these animals in, they need antibiotics just to stay alive, to prevent infections. So they give them a low, low dose of antibiotics. It doesn't really treat anything, but it prevents infections. We do the same thing in humans and people who have chronic urinary tract infections, for for example. Uh, We give them low dose of antibiotics to prevent them from getting an infection, and it works. But the problem is, who survives? The resistant bacteria. So that's where we got resistant salmonella is from antibiotic use in animals. In Denmark, 
The government closely controls the use of antibiotics, and they actually banned that low-dose use of antibiotics in food animals and saw a reduction in the development of resistant bacteria coming from those animals. So it does work if we can slow that down. But, you know, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't want that to slow down because that's profitable for them. The people growing the livestock don't really want to slow it down because it helps them grow bigger animals and the animals survive to go to market. So that's kind of the story of how agriculture sort of fits in there. And then he also talks about the cost of this problem. We spend greater than $5 billion a year, that's an estimate, on resistant bacteria treatment in this country. That's just in the United States. There were 19,000 deaths attributed to resistant bacteria. That's more than the number of people who died from HIV. That made the press, actually. That's significant. And estimated 20% of hospital-acquired infections are resistant, are due to resistant bacteria. That costs a lot. And actually, the insurance companies and Medicare are responding to that. If they can prove that the infection you have is hospital-acquired, and the way they define that is if you develop it three days after you've been at the hospital, then you probably didn't bring it in with you. <laughs> it probably started at the hospital. Um, they're not going to pay for that. So we're going to end up paying for that. But they're going to stop reimbursing the hospitals. Medicare will start that. They may have already started it, but soon. Because they, the hospitals have to take action to do something about it. Resistant bacteria increase two to fourfold, the, two to fivefold the chance that you're going to die from that infection, and increase twofold the length of stay in the hospital. So, again, the loss of life and the, the economic impact are huge on this problem. So, he also talks about how the bacteria accomplish the change. And uh, like I keep saying, they're survivors, and they are. They're really good at making changes. And, and unlike us, they can pass DNA back and forth between each other. I mean, we do that, but not, you know, like as easily as they do. Um, so they can trade DNA with another, like trading cards with another bacteria that they find around. Um, so they take that DNA in, and they change themselves so that antibiotic doesn't work anymore. Antibiotics are designed, so if you have a thing that looks like this in the bacteria, it can attack that thing, but if it looks like this, it can't because it can't see it and doesn't know what it is, and it doesn't work on that. So they change so that they look different, they behave different. They also develop a way to take the antibiotic into their system and spit it back out. I like that one, efflux. They take it in, doesn't do anything, and they just spit it back out. Um, so that, I like that one. And then finally, um, they develop a way to cut the drug so the drug is no longer active, so then it can't do its job. So those are three ways that they change, all involving DNA changes. And he talks a lot about some genetic stuff, and it, that got kind of confusing and complicated. But some people feel that the answer to this resistance problem is addressing the genetic issue of the, of the bacteria. But I would argue, and he does a little bit too, that too much of that probably is going to just lead us back to a different problem of resistance. You know, the more we, the more we manipulate our environment, the bacteria are part of our environment. Bacteria are important to us. They help us digest food. They help us break things down. They help us 
keep our, I mean, they do tons of stuff for us. They're, they're very important to have around. We have tons of bacteria that don't cause disease just hanging around all the time. So the more we, we manipulate those, the more we put them into our wastewater, the more we put them into our animals, the more we change them, um, then we, we, we're going to, I think we're going to create other problems. But he talks a little bit about, about what's being done. One thing he talks about is reduction in antibiotic production, which is significant. They're not producing antibiotics to treat these resistant uh, bacteria. There's still no good antibiotic to treat the the Klebsiella that he opens the article with. Uh, We're still using those two old antibiotics to treat that. There's no good one out there yet. They developed something called escape microbes and went and asked the NIH and all those other federal people that fund research to fund research on these resistant antibiotics, Enterococcus, Klebsiella, Salmonella, Acinobacter, Pseudomonas, and Enterobacter. And even with all of that going, testifying to Congress and everybody else, they still just got a tiny drop in the bucket of research money for new antibiotics for these bacteria. And part of the problem is there have been some distractions. Um, We got all scared about, you know, uh, weapons of mass destruction and anthrax and the plague coming back and all those other things. So we started developing things for that. And also, if we look across the world, TB, HIV, and malaria are huge health problems. Two-thirds of the people in the world are positive for TB. Now, that doesn't mean two-thirds of the people in the world have active TB, but two-thirds of the population of the world are positive for TB. That means they've either had the disease or they have it now. That's a lot of people. And as you know, TB has become drug-resistant. And so it's become harder to treat, and it's even become multi-drug resistant and extremely drug resistant, so it's, it's a big deal. HIV, a growing problem, epidemic in some countries, not in our country, but in other countries, it's an epidemic that is taking the lives of children and mothers and fathers, leaving countries devastated. It's knocking out their productive workforce. That's a distraction. We need to address that as a society, so money's been spent that way. Malaria. We don't even know much about malaria. I can't tell you much about malaria. You get it by mosquitoes, and we don't have a lot of it in this country. Any any cases we have here are imported, but there's drug-resistant malaria now, and malaria, again, can kill people, and it's a worldwide problem. So we spend money on those things. In the scheme of things, the resistant bacteria that we're seeing are, are small. I think that's important to understand. They're important, but they're small. So that's one reason some of the funding hasn't come. The other thing, some of the things we're doing to contribute to the problem, it's estimated that 22.6 million prescriptions for antibiotics were unnecessary in the likes of last year. 22.6 million prescriptions of unnecessary antibiotics. They are doing some small research projects. The two that were interesting to me were the ones where they're looking at if they put an antibiotic in your nose, how does it affect the microbial makeup of the rest of you? And then the, uh, the quorum sensing concept that the bacteria are so smart, they wait until there are enough of them to wake up your immune system that your immune system can't do much about it. That's, I mean, that's pretty cool. So they sit and wait and kind of hang out like the Trojan horse kind of thing, and hang out there. And when there are enough of them to be able to do something and they're harder to fight, they, they make themselves known. Um, so they're working on how can we turn that off? 
how could we turn that off so that that doesn't happen? And there are some new drugs out there, but not many of them. So that kind of summarizes his article and a little bit of what I think. I'd be interested to know what you all think about this problem. So this time I'd open it up for questions, if anybody has one. Hello. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about how antibiotics affect bacteria? Like how antibiotics actually fight bacteria? I know you said the thing with the finger. Yeah, but there actually there are lots of different ways antibiotics um, impact bacteria. They can stop the life cycle, so they can interrupt the life cycle at any phase of the life cycle of the bacteria, so that means the bacteria can't reproduce and grow. They, that's not killing the bacteria, that's just slowing down its growth so it doesn't continue to populate your body and make you sick. Bacteria have different coatings on the outside of them. Some of them are gram-negative, some of them are gram-positive. The gram-negative ones, kind of interesting, actually are the ones with the coating because they don't take up the dye. The coating's like this kind of jelly thing on the outside. It's really, it's not a jelly, but good enough. So sometimes they can inactivate that protein coat, so that makes the bacteria susceptible to your body's immune system. So those are the ones that will kill the bacteria. So they'll actually kill the bacteria there in your system. So they take advantage of some of the protective stuff that bacteria have and inactivate that, or they stop the life cycle. So two different methods, bactericidal, and there's a word for it, and I can't think of it, where they just, thank you, static, bacteriostatic. Yes, thank you. Maybe related to that, several years ago I quit buying any liquid hand soap that was antibacterial because mm-hmm. I thought of that going into the water and um, the downstream <laughs> effects of that. So is it that the bacteria can also become resistant to things like that and, and other surface treatments like alcohol, bleach, can they become the, resistant? It to is theorized that they can, can do that. Yikes. We don't. Well, and if you read in the article, the, the doc who dealt with the Klebsiella outbreak, he, he decided they probably were resistant to the phenols and other things they were using to clean their hands with. So he made it clean stuff with, so he made them start using bleach. And even in spite of that, they still, it, that didn't totally slow everything down. There have no, been no studies in, in looking at the use of topical cleaners that I'm aware of to show, to demonstrate true resistance in those things is simply a theory. Um, They actually did some interesting studies on alcohol-based hand sanitizers and then some of the newer stuff that's not alcohol-based and showed that the stuff that's not alcohol-based hand sanitizer actually increased the bacterial count on your hands. Yeah. (laughs) They think the reason is is because it allows for bacterial growth within itself so that when you put it on your hands, it doesn't really help the problem, where the alcohol-based ones do not. But nobody has demonstrated true resistance from topical cleaners than I am aware of. Mm-hmm. But it's a theory. So thinking about what we're doing in our own kitchens, if we run sort of a vegetarian kitchen and so we don't bleach our surfaces, our food prep surfaces in our own homes, what else should we be thinking of? Should we be worried about dirt that's brought in on our vegetables that may still be lingering on countertops and chopping boards? If you use good sanitary practice, you wash your, clean your countertops um, with approved household cleaners, and you're washing your hands and washing your vegetables regularly, the risk of you bringing those things into your home is minimal. Where we really get into trouble with with the vegetable side of things is in particular in mass production 
for one thing, where you've got these big giant farms and it's just hard to really get everything cleaned off and they take it to the market with them. And the other, if you remember some of the outbreaks we've had related to food, have been foods like spinach that you that are really hard. That was a fertilizer, fertilizer issue where it grew into it. And that, again, it goes back to the farm. Um, but the spinach stuff, you, you can't... Um, zap it. You can't heat it up because it wilts, um, which is you know, the premise of some salad recipes. And so it's really hard to clean lettuce and get everything off of it. So the lettuces or green leafy stuff is really a challenge in that respect. Again, it goes back to knowing your farmer, looking at locally grown, organically grown produce, and not those big massive farms. You know, the E. coli with the spinach, basically they had a pig farm next door to the spinach farm, and I'm using the wrong words because a pig would not be called a farm, I don't think, but, and a wild boar hung out with the pigs for a while and then meandered down through the spinach and contaminated it, and the runoff also contaminated it, so it was all that mixing of stuff that, that caused that, so it, it does, I think it really goes back to knowing, knowing where your food comes from. Yes, ma'am. For myself, I've always avoided antibiotics if I can help it and just kind of mm-hmm. write things out. But now that I have a daughter, it gets a little more complicated. And we go to the doctor, and they prescribe antibiotics, and I don't like questioning authority. <laughs> so if they tell me <laughs> Wait antibiotics, I know. I know. Um, but if they say, you know, she needs mm-hmm. antibiotics, I want to do what they tell me because she's my, you know, precious daughter. Mm-hmm. So how, other than questioning them and saying, does she really, really need this, what would you advise? And th- that's something I didn't touch on. The CDC has a huge campaign on the judicious use of antibiotics. Get smart, I think is what it's called. And that's a huge part of the problem. So it's two-sided. The doc thinks you expect it. So they're trying to be pleasing. You're sitting there going, I don't really want this, but I don't want to question you. You went to a lot of school, and you know, then you're going to be mad at me. And you're not going to be nice to my kid. and Your nurse will be mean to me and stuff like that. But it's okay to have that discussion. It might be best to have that discussion when your child does not have an infection. It might be best to, you know, not at the time when you're interfacing with that issue. She's cranky. It's not the best interaction anyway. At a well child check when everything's fine, say, hey, let's talk about antibiotic use. It's great to have that discussion. We overprescribe antibiotics so much in this country. In the UK and other countries where they're able to do this, what they do is, and I tried to do this in practice, in particular in kids who have maybe a red ear. If you'll give them a couple of days, bring them back, look at that ear again. If it's still red, then prescribe an antibiotic. If it's not, they're fine. So many of those infections are caused by viruses, and viruses do not respond to antibiotics. We get better, but it's not because of the antibiotic. It's because our immune system's intact, and it fights off the virus, and we get better. Bronchitis. Most bronchitis is caused by virus. A lot of sinus infections are caused by viruses, no matter what color your nasal discharge is. Um, There are all kinds of guidelines on that. And I don't know if doctors, if we just ignore them, because there's, there's good documentation that the predictor of whether you have a bacterial sinus infection is fever and tooth pain. Has nothing to do with the color of your mucus. Zero. And it's funny, people will come in and they want to show you their mucus. <laughs> Don't do that. That's just gross. <laughs> Look. It's like, uh, put that in the trash can. So anyway, it, it, it's a two-sided coin. It's a, it's a tough call. 
Yeah, I had uh, two questions. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I, I'd read something along, but it's been a number of years ago, so maybe it's not completely accurate about the use of hand sanitizers. And uh, what the article concluded was that, that when people don't use them effectively, that they say instead of seven minutes, they rub it on their hands for three minutes mm-hmm. or so, that they kill the beneficial bacteria on their hands, which is a lot more susceptible to the, the sanitizer. And then the mean nasty stuff is, gets, is able to get a foothold, that the more inert bacteria outcompetes a lot of the more... Uh, drug-resistant bacteria. Mm. I'll have to say I don't know for sure uh-huh. about that that particular issue. The bottom line is whether you're washing your hands with soap and water or using a hand sanitizer, you got to do it properly. Either one done improperly doesn't help you. Yeah, it doesn't clean off the bacteria that you want to get rid of. So that I mean, to me, that's the bottom line. I, I'm not sure about. I, I haven't seen that study, and I don't know the most recent data on hand sanitizers except that. They're used properly. They are as effective as soap and water, unless your hands are visibly soiled with dirt or blood or whatever. So. And, and there was another thing that I heard, and this is a little hippy-dippy. There was a study where they worked with kindergarten children, and on their level, they explained bacteria and the immune system with sock puppets, mm-hmm. you know, and they had a little white blood cell eating, you know, a bacteria. And they set the kids aside, and they let them kind of rest, and they, they asked them to think about the little puppet show to sort of meditate on that. And they took a cotton swab inside their mouth, and they found that their immune system was ten times more active hmm. than it was before the puppet show. Hmm. And so the, the thought is, if your coworkers got the sniffles that maybe, you know, through meditation or just thinking about it, you can boost your immune system when the... The, you know, you don't have that quorum in your system. That, or they scared them and they're... No, I, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. No, but that's interesting. No, there are all kinds of different ways to, to boost one's immune system. Uh, certainly, we, we can all do a lot to keep down infection. Washing our hands is one of them. Staying home if you're sick. You know, covering your cough. And not taking antibiotics. Okay, do antibiotics treat colds? Good answer. What about the flu? No. Those are viruses. And, and most of the respiratory illnesses going around this time of year are viruses. We have a lot of viral illnesses. And how do you tell the difference? It's kind of hard sometimes. Generally, viral illnesses are going to come on a little faster and hit you like a Mack truck. Bacteria, you know, they're viruses' slower brother. Uh, they take a little longer. You feel kind of yucky for a little while and then develop a fever and symptoms. The viruses, and you feel really achy when you have a virus because they release these thing called, things called pyrons that make you feel really achy and like your hair hurts and stuff. So that, those are subtle differences, but some differences. Yes, ma'am. Um, yeah, um, you or Grootman talks about the two big things that are making resistant bacteria, cattle feeding bacteria, I mean, antibiotics mm-hmm. and human misuse of antibiotics. Which one of those is worse? Worse, the worst problem. Great question. Um, I, I would say the one that's been going on the longest, so probably contributing more just because it's been around longer, is our addiction and love for a pill when we're sick. You know, we love to take a pill when we're sick. 
And it makes us feel better, even if it's not doing a darn thing for whatever's making us sick. It makes us happy. It, it gives us that positive reinforcement. So I would say that that's probably contributing more just because it's been there longer. The industry's love affair with antibiotics it came along later. That's not a great scientific answer, but it's my guess. You said how many doses of antibiotics are prescribed each year. Can you answer that again? Um, yeah, the estimate is that, i got to find it, sorry, 22.6 million unnecessary And what are they antibiotic for colds? Or yeah, they're cold. It's mostly colds, thing. sinus infections. And this, I got, I, I got more grief in private practice when I would not call in an antibiotic than anything else. Anything else. They would, people would call and say, I have a, they've self-diagnosed a sinus infection. They've got to have an antibiotic. And I wouldn't call it in. And they've been sick like, you know, six hours. <laughs> so there's that, that demand. And, you know, you'll lose people in your practice for refusing to call antibiotics in. They'll go find someone else who will do it because there are plenty of docs out there who will. And we are just as guilty as the parents, as the patients asking for them. My, I finally taught my family that I will not write prescriptions for antibiotics. It took a long time. But I finally, and it took some hurt feelings. <laughs> but it sat down and talked to them, and I don't do that. Um, because frequently, that's not what they need, and it's just contributing to the issue. I mean, we, we have plenty of chemicals going in and out of us. We don't need more, so. But yeah, it's a lot. So, anything else? Go ahead. Since you mentioned the gym, when you go to the gym, there's just all those surfaces with that everyone else has touched. Mm-hmm. So how can you protect yourself? Wash your hands and shower. Shower. Um, and so, uh, like, scrub all yeah, over. Well, just, just shower. Okay. Routine showering okay. is fine. Here's the deal. Unless you have an open weeping wound, yuck, everybody finished eating, that drains onto the surface of the gym equipment and then I come along behind you and I have an open wound somewhere on my body and I rub it on where your yucky wound drained and the bacteria get into that open surface or you know a hangnail could do that and then they get in there and set up housekeeping and cause me to have an infection we're not going to spread those things so that's one reason I'm not real compliant because I don't have open weeping wounds. I mean, that's not. I mean, don't don't tell the gym guys that. But I don't think what the the, the request that people wipe down equipment has done a whole lot. Where it ha- where it does do a whole lot is routine cleaning. They need to clean their equipment regularly, and in the locker room, where you have the same people in there all the time sharing lots of things, and they do all have active cuts and stuff because they're, they're playing sports and they're having, I mean, even non-contact sports, people get cut and hurt. And so that's a, a total setup for spreading infection. And the other thing that they do that's really gross is they won't shower. I've had discussions with the athletic department for Knox County Schools. And they've actually turned the water off in some of their showers because the kids will not use them. They do not shower after practice. They do not shower after games. And I don't know how you get them to do that. And, and it's social. It's a social issue. They don't want to be naked with a bunch of other people of the same sex, basically. Or they think the shower at school's dirty, whatever. 
and so they don't shower at school. And so then you have these kids not showering and, you know, sharing things. I heard a horror story about someone who caught some kind of a thing on her stomach from the steam room. And so I've stopped going in the, the steam sauna at the Y. Is, well, that, is there any? That's certainly, yeah, you can certainly pick things up there. I mean, again, it goes back to, you know, some good personal hygiene and in showering regularly and washing your hands and all that kind of stuff, being personally responsible for those things. Maybe you mentioned it earlier and I missed it, but when looking at hand soaps and things like that, is there a certain thing we should look for when buying them? Not necessarily brands, but... In hand sanitizers, you want them to be 60 to 90% alcohol. Uh, anything below 60% is not going to do much good. So obviously the more alcohol, in theory, the better. There are some newer ones on the market that are non-alcohol hand sanitizers. Don't buy those at all. And when, you, when you're looking at a hand soap, antibacterial is good. But the biggest thing you do when you wash your hands is saponification. You wet your hands, you slather up, and you rub your hands, and you capture those little bacteria and viruses in the lipid, the fat of the soap, and it gets carried away down the drain. So it really doesn't matter if it's antibacterial or not. The mechanical rubbing and the way the soap works is what really gets it off there. So that's why you're supposed to sing Happy Birthday twice. I mean, 20 seconds is a long time to wash your hands. It's a long time. And I'm supposed to tell you that's what you're supposed to do. But try it. Time it. It's a long time. So, everybody got their flu shots? Yes, sir. I'd just like your comments on a few different things. One, sure. The population of the planet is getting, increasing constantly. The closer proximity we have to each other, the more likely we are to get sick. That's why it happens in the hospital where a lot of people are together. Another thing is, uh, I question, uh, global warming, is that affecting us in terms of uh, these little buggers getting further north or further south, depending on where you are? Certainly could. Those, Those bacteria that thrive in warm climate, warm, moist climates as the climate changes are going to be able to survive in places they normally couldn't survive. One thing I I forgot to talk about is how our mobility contributes to this problem. Um, There's some uh, bacteria that are more endemic in Iraq than they are here, but we're seeing them being imported by our soldiers as they come back because they get colonized or they get an infection. So, so our mobility and the change in climate does contribute to that. And you're right, overpopulation contributes, contributes to the spread of infection in a very large way. Um, there are certain places in the country, and not in the country, in the world, where TB is, I mean, basically everybody has TB. It, you assume everybody has TB. They live in such tight quarters and no ventilation, such poor living facilities, that they just really spread TB like crazy. You know, until they can change that environment, they can treat those people all day long, and they're just going to keep spreading infection because we've got to change those living that those living in that living environment. Um, but overpopulation certainly contributes to it. Yes, absolutely. So here's a question, and it's and it's about something we probably all heard as we were growing up, family and school and everything. Mm-hmm. 
that sunlight kills bacteria, ultraviolet light, which is a component of sunlight, kills mm-hmm. bacteria. Ultraviolet, is that okay. actually true? Ultraviolet light kills the bacteria that are sensitive to it, but the bacteria that can form spores and you know, thumb their nose at ultraviolet light survive. So there so, are... Mm, oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. There, yeah. There are b- bacteria that can form spores and survive for years in the soil. And, uh, you know, once they're awakened and allowed to get into something nice and moist, they'll come back alive and, and cause problems. But there are there's still lots of bacteria that are susceptible to ultraviolet light. But, you know, again, that would be a length of time exposure... Zapping it once with some ultraviolet light is not going to be a big enough dose to do anything unless you also, like, destroy the person it's on. So my, you don't want my, to do that. My background is architectural. Mm-hmm. And I just, just as a, almost an aside, there's a, a, a huge difference in uh, hospital design between Europe and, say, for example, here in mm-hmm. the U.S., mm-hmm. where in Europe their hospitals have way, way, way much more glass than our hospitals hmm. do. In other words, more light. Mm-hmm. And uh, my, my question, I guess, is based on that. Is that is that Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. If, I mean, they certainly have their problems with uh, MRSA outbreaks, but they've tackled them uh, a lot more aggressively than we have, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately for them, unfortunately for us. And we, we don't seem to want to learn from our European brethren uh, very much. So... Uh, we don't seem to be adopting some of those best practices here in the United States. You know, I don't think anybody, I haven't seen anything in looking at, you know, chronic UV exposure and how it affects uh, bacterial counts. I know what we do in our TB clinic, in our sputum collection room, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's where people go spit in a cup. It's, but that's what we need. At nighttime, we turn on, and when that room's not in use, we put the UV lights on in there to just bring down the bacterial count in that room uh, to reduce the risk of infections. And it, it, something's working because we don't seem to be passing it around amongst people in our TB clinic, which is good. It's good. It would be bad for us to spread disease within our own clinic. So, One thing that I've seen even in this article and in a lot of other things is... In the time that I've grown up, there are a lot of people that think that they can distance themselves from their environment, and they make choices that they think that you know, they can take this pill and change their lives, or that there's some fast, easy cure. And that kind of thinking has actually created problems like these resistant bacteria, mm-hmm. among other things, or you know, putting animals together to produce faster and easier. Yeah, that's, certainly. That's all of those things uh, certainly all those things have contributed to this and other issues as well. The need to again take a pill and make me feel better, and take an antibiotic and make me feel better certainly has contributed to development of resistant bacteria. Anything else? Thanks. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.